Welcome to Digital Momentum. I'm Mike Ryan, Head of Retail Insights at Smarter E-Commerce. This show offers conversational interviews with leaders in digital marketing, digital transformation, and e-commerce growth. Today, we have a really special episode. It's a panel discussion about the future of e-commerce. I'm joined by Brian McBride, former CEO of Amazon UK and former chairman of fast fashion icon ASOS. Brian reported directly to Jeff Bezos and led a key market during a period of exponential growth. Next, there's Tristan Horks, a futurist from the Zukunftsinstitut. That's German for the Future Institute. It's one of Europe's leading think tanks for future studies, and Tristan is an expert in megatrends including digitization, globalization, and generational change. Our third panelist is Jan Radanich, CEO and co-founder of Smarter E-Commerce, responsible for the digital marketing success of hundreds of Europe's largest brands and retailers, and an advocate of digital maturity. Last word, then we'll dig in. While usually I'm the one asking questions around here, this time I was in the hot seat too, and the panel was moderated by my good friend and chief client officer at Smarter E-Commerce, Christian Schamulle. Okay, let's get into it. Ladies and gentlemen, the panel session officially starts now. Um, I think there's no need to introduce us once again. You know what the people are made of, where they're coming from, and what they're standing for. So panel question number one, talking about change in demand. I mean, obviously this, this green demand topic, right? Um, is obviously a, a big one. Are we still talking about the trend or is it more or less a necessity for every online retailer in the world to have somehow a green take on, on consumption in general? Maybe, maybe I start with this, of this question. Um, I think in somehow, of course, it, it is this, the, the people what we see day by day in, in the society, that they are waiting solutions uh, for that. And on the other side, uh, what Tristan also pointed out was that we have some sort of a paradox feeling to it. What we really do with it, are we really able to take action now? Because especially when you say the climate change is the least problem we see, or at least from an economy point of perspective, and that's so weird, this procrastination, because we, need, we see that, that this change will take a long time. But what I liked in, also in your speech was this, this idea of changing the, this threat in, in, in future ecologic topics to a more motivating ongoing step. What shall we do here? Because I think it's totally necessary. One of these watchtowers, or you say 12 companies, are, they are only watching if you mm. do it right. Uh, that's right. I see another trend that people watch themselves so much if they do something with ecological footprint or not. And it's totally weird because in the end you lose fun and life with everything. And it does not mean that fun is there only if you, you, you waste your environment. It can be, you can have a great life without wasting anything of our resources. But the, the interesting thing is that, that this is uh, combined somehow. And I don't know exactly how to solve this, but I think Maybe we will take this question later on to Brian, back to Brian. It takes a lot of leadership. A lot of people who work together in society and also the, the retailers, the brands have to work together to change this mind, maybe. And Tristan, talking about, or maybe also Brian and, and, and Mike, um, talking about that climate change stuff, right? It, it feels like, especially in the younger generation, it is a hot topic. And I know a lot of online retailers who are somehow sleeping on that topic. Uh, so from your perspective, are there somehow best practices out there. I know, Brian, talking about ASOS, do you see that ASOS is tackling that climate change topping and, and build their brand around it? 
Uh, and the same for you, Mike. Do you see any any retailers who are kind of a best practice when it comes down to to that green consumption trend, so to speak? Yeah, l let me talk about ASOS. Remember, I've been out of ASOS for a couple of years, but there was a the whole fashion industry had a big, big focus on this. It's what we call circularity, because the fashion industry makes too much product, sells too much product, and people don't wear it for long enough, and it ends up going to landfill, and that's not really good. So what you're seeing now is a big focus on, on natural fibres, much less of the, the, the human-made stuff. Uh, you're seeing people being encouraged to, to keep stuff for longer, to, to kind of put it into secondhand shops. There is a bit of a, a gulf between the industry who, who's trying to do the right things and the consumer. Younger consumers want companies that they buy from or have a relationship with to have a purpose, to be good companies. Mm. But I'm not sure today if young consumers are prepared to pay a premium for that. You know, if it's going to cost a little bit more to have naturally made product, I'm not sure that today they'll pay an extra couple of pounds. Think about Elon Musk and the Tesla car. It's pretty expensive today. It's a pretty, it's a pretty hefty ROI when you think of the cost of, you know, where battery technology is today. So I just think that uh, going green comes at a cost. I think we've got to do the right things. Uh, we've got to be prepared to take the big bets as companies. Mm. And we've got to hope that the consumer quickly catches up and puts their money where the mouth is. Brian, you just stole the, the phrase right out of my mouth. I was going to say, in the end, people are going to need to put their money where their mouth is because right now it's it's not tenable the way that it is. People, on the one hand, um, are expecting more and more convenience, faster shipping, better availability. And on the other hand, they're also saying that they want companies to do better. They, as a consumer, also need to to help lead the companies in a certain sense. It's it's bi-directional. Both parties kind of need to commit to that and do better. But if com if consumers don't spend the way that they're changing, that's sort of a challenge. It seems to me then when we talk about questions of authenticity, they will spend authentically. They will behave authentically. Their preference might be one way, but if their expressed behavior is different, there's a contradiction. When it comes to you know best practices or alternatives, I think a really interesting question that maybe can be answered with data is, do we need to make that next day delivery or free shipping offer every time? Or if we know something about the user, can we tailor a different message or a different offer to them instead of just you know carpet bombing everybody with these free delivery offers and so on when maybe the consumer didn't need it or wouldn't have wanted it? And Best practices, I have to think of IKEA. They are probably the most ambitious retailer that I am aware of, really, and a brand and manufacturer that is most committed to becoming a, a really a circular company. So they're definitely someone, a place to watch. Can I just say one thing about that, the generational topic? Uh, I think the Gen Z, so the youngest kids the youngest, right now, yes. they are actually putting their money where their mouth is. They just don't have a lot of money. <laughs> That's kind of the problem for them. Yeah? Um, my generation, millennials, also your generation we established before, we're kind of part of the problem because we don't put, we actually have the buying power and we don't really do the ecological choice yet. So I think just because I'm very into generational research, I think one has to be very distinctive there. The Fridays for Future kids, they're extremely on top of it and they, they're also i mean they're running in the universities trying to study ecology you know studies they're having to make new courses and so on because they're all driving into it so they're actually they're actually doing something about it while our generation i'm sorry to say we're kind of just watching <laughs> and yeah, buying just, yeah <laughs> unfortunately 
I mean, talking about becoming a green brand, I mean, especially when we're talking about fashion, you know, fast fashion, I think fashion is probably the industry which is the least green from my perspective. Can be can becoming a green brand, can this be a massive differentiator in the near future? And if so, when do we have to start or when does a brand have to start to become green? Because that probably won't happen overnight, especially in the perception of the potential clients. So can becoming a green brand be one massive differentiator? And another question could be in general, what are the major characteristics or indicators of differentiation to beat out competition? Mike, you want to start first? Um, yeah, sure. Well, I think it's it's not an overnight thing. It's For most companies, it will be a transformation. It will be a multi-year strategic initiative and it needs uh, that commitment. I'm sure that there are quick wins that can be that can be delivered there, but also to this point about trust being this huge currency in the future now and in the future, it's it's just going to take time to to build that trust up, and that people know it's really coming from a from a good place. That you don't need to have a watchdog in place, um, as was as was mentioned before. But I see there's plenty of room. There are, there are business models and there are investors, there are a lot of people tackling this. Uh, it's definitely a differentiator. It's a little, it shouldn't only be a differentiator, it should be, come from a place of, of values and, and what's right, but it does have that effect. And you know, we'll see more customer to customer marketplaces coming up to mm-hmm. facilitate reused, refurbed things, mm-hmm. or excuse me, used and recycled. And, and also, yeah, I think this is one of the most interesting applications for a marketplace business model can actually be towards sustainability. Makes sense. Uh, Ryan, you have been talk, uh, working for, for the big dog, Amazon, right? <laughs> I don't want to call it the big evil because I think Amazon is rightfully in the position it is in. But talking about differentiators, um, what can an online retailer, an ambitious one, do against Amazon? How to differentiate from your perspective, working for the company, which is obviously dominating a lot of industries right now. Well, I think um, it does depend on your category. For instance, I don't think Amazon was uh, a competitor to ASOS in the fashion space because ASOS was aiming at 18 to 30 year olds. So, so a younger demographic who are looking for a particular mm. leading fast fashion. That's not really what Amazon mm. does. Amazon is great at selling lots of pairs of black shoes and lots of belts and lots of standard trousers or jackets or hats. So Amazon creates and caters for a mass market. And I used to contrast ASOS and Amazon by saying, ASOS created demand. It told the youngsters what was fashionable, what was in this season, and made them want to buy it, and they did go out and buy it. Amazon fulfills demand. Amazon doesn't actually make you want something. When you know what you want, you go to Amazon to get it. And I think that's quite an important differentiator. So I think everyone just stands in fear and terror and awe of Amazon. And actually, Amazon has got many weaknesses. I mean, we spoke about personalization earlier in, in my talk. And think about Amazon and what it knows about you. Amazon is powerful because it, it has got great algorithms. It's been working with data for 20 years, and it knows that people who bought this glass you know, also bought that phone cover. It is great at making those connections. But think about what Amazon knows about you. Not very much, actually. It knows your date of birth. It, it knows your email address. It doesn't even know your date of birth. It knows your email address and, and your delivery address. Uh, and and your credit card, and that's it. It doesn't know if you're black or white, male or female, Russian or Chinese, 15 or 50. It's never asked you those things, and it never will. So it doesn't actually try to build up 
that intimate relationship with you. Whereas if you're an ASOS customer, we know when your birthday is, we know when your paycheck comes in, we know what parties you go to, you upload photographs of yourself to our site wearing our gear. So it's a, a very different relationship. So I think find your niche, find an area, not so much Amazon's weak spot, but find an area where it's just too hard for them. One of my businesses was appliances online, AO.com. Amazon tried for years when I was there to do appliances and it just can't do it. It couldn't handle two-man delivery. It couldn't handle the, the warranty and the insurance aspect of it. So it's very much a marketplace business for Amazon. So Amazon is not great at everything. Find the bits that it isn't good at and go after those or use the Amazon ecosystem. Use the Amazon cloud. Use the Amazon marketplace. You know, let it do your fulfillment for you. But don't just stop and fear when you see Amazon coming along. Makes absolute sense. Jan, talking about differentiators, obviously leadership can be one. At least I truly believe in. You as a leader and founder of this company, Jan, do you think leadership can be a differentiator, especially in these tough, disruptive and highly dynamic times? Yeah, yeah I was very inspired uh, from the speech Brian, Brian Held when he was talking about leadership. And I think what we all can do to differentiate, no matter in which uh, industry we work and maybe build something up like a brand who owns this this connection and this relationship to their clients. It's about these fast decisions and really hiring these, these good people and then let them do, let them from, uh, yeah, uh, do their work. So this is, this is very, very important. And we saw, we, we have a lot of clients. They are not online pure players. They, they have a lot of legacy, legacy systems and, and all structures and all that. But still, many of them are super successful when they let some people come up and they really started to take fast decisions. They really started to, to go somewhere else, to find talent and, and doing all that stuff, what they need to, to evolve from this, this, all this, I call it ballast. They are still successful also with the old model, but they, they were able through strong leadership from my point of view uh, to establish also this, this new line and, and, and to build up their e-commerce business. Pretty interesting. And I think that's a perfect segue to one question which uh, came from, from the audience, actually. And I think, uh, Tristan, you, you partially covered it. Uh, talking about the old models, I know for a fact that we have a lot of brick and mortar uh, clients. So mm. they are somewhat prisoners of the old model, but are definitely focusing on, on the new e-commerce world. From your take, of, yeah, from your perspective, post-pandemic, will physical retail survive in the long run? You already had your take on it, but maybe you can elaborate a little mm. bit more. I think it could actually be the golden hour for physical retail. But then the question becomes, what can physical retail do over online retail? Mm -hmm. And that's what I had this formula before. New technologies force older ones back into their original strengths. That's why I think, again, the shopping center is such a good sign of you don't really build up an intimate connection with the customer there. If, if he could, he would probably get it flown in by a drone. But, you know, the shopping center is kind of middle convenient, maybe, you know, that experience in online buying it. So I think... It will become smaller, more intimate, and more personal. Mm -hmm. That's the benefit that physical retail has over online retail. And so then also the way a showroom is built and so on. Maybe you go there and you test out different products and they get sent to you in the end anyways because you don't need to take them home anymore. These kind of dynamics, I think, are very interesting. But again, also, you know, to give physical retail a lifeline. Yeah. But at the same time, I mean, I think Brian mentioned it before in his speech, there was a certain kind of overinflation of physical retail as well. In many sectors, we said 20 to 30% could go mm -hmm. and you wouldn't be surprised. That's, you know, the natural effect of a crisis is it makes clear what was clear before, but couldn't be changed. Mm -hmm. Now, what we see obviously the last 10, probably to 15 years is that brick and mortar stores are 
trying to gain ground in the e-commerce world. Now my question is, and we see this with big pure players, that maybe the other way around is also happening. So that pure players are now trying to cover some ground, you know, um, in, in, in the physical retail uh, segment. So, uh, Brian, again, working for ASOS, uh, to be honest, I don't even know if ASOS has been thinking about having retail stores and I don't know the status, but what is your take on, on big pure players, uh, category leaders? Do you think that they will see this golden chance having retail, physical retail stores live as a, as a new growth path for them? I don't think so. I think we've seen Amazon open up a few pop-up stores. You know, it's uh, the Amazon Go store. Uh, you know, it bought Whole Foods uh, five years ago. And I think Amazon has been using this as a bit of a data experiment, a customer experiment, just to observe customer behavior. When I was at ASOS, you know, we thought about taking over one of the big stores, one of the big iconic storefronts in Oxford Street in London. But then we thought, what would you put in it? You know, you could have a shop window with your, your latest offerings, but you can't keep inventory, not when you've got you know, 100,000 SKUs and, and customers want stuff, you know, they want it immediately. So I just think, uh, I see it as being a bit of a marketing experiment for the pure play people. They may have, I mean, Amazon's talking about an electronic store in the UK where they're going to have the top 500 products in it. So if you had a limited view like that and you could keep the inventory, it might work. But I don't think, I think they're playing around. It's not, they're not going to transform the business. And at the end of the day, it, it won't make any difference to the business model. I think it's harder to go the other way. And I think physical stores, many of them are doing a pretty good job at turning themselves into omni-channel businesses. But the business model of a physical store with 500 stores, 500 industry pools, it's a lot more costly and difficult and inefficient than running a business with two or three big warehouses. Mike, what is your take on it? I hear, I hear what you're saying, Brian, but I also have, I, I think we'll see more of this, at least experimenting. What will come of it? I don't know, but I would even say, yeah, it's already happening with some of these um, kind of darling brands from the D2C e-commerce, you know, VC backed or venture capital backed. Um, some of these brands are already launching investigations into this. And if, if something will really come out of it, it's hard, it's hard to say, but let's say that um, e-commerce has a 20% share of, um, of retail then that's 80% that a pure player is leaving on the table, hypothetically. Um, I, I think that we'll see omni-channel um, growing and it won't just come from, from physical retailers enhancing their e-commerce offering and blending it. I think it can come from the other direction too. That's my take on it. I think maybe I, I, I would add something. So when, when we talk about the future and we think a little bit more ahead, uh, maybe we also have to think not about uh, physical store and e-commerce as the shop, let it be desktop or mobile. I know coming now. So, yeah. I, yeah, I think we have to talk about integration in our whole life. Whatever we are going to do, yeah. if we are at an event or whatever, we will have maybe this or that device and we just order something. It's clear who we are. We, we can identify in a second and then we get sent home whatever we need and whatever we want. So I think a lot of different things in our whole life are really woven in or integrated in what we are doing at the moment. So selling or shopping would be much more impulsive, much more at the moment, this upcoming need. And this could be a big chance also. Mm -hmm. If it's good or not, we have to. <laughs> I mean, this is always the question of, are you, in the end, are you going to sit in a physical location with the VR glasses on and just look through products that aren't actually there? No, right? no, no. That's I'm always not the, talking that's about VR. No, no, no. Much, much easier. Technical get. integration. Just you're at an event, you like what you see there, mm. and you buy some stuff, merchandising stuff, whatever. You just do it here. It's not a shop with all the 100,000 SKUs. 
it's more or less a constant pop-up shopping everywhere. Mm. Yeah, I, I think what the technological interface is going to be, I, I can't predict that, but I agree there will be more of a everywhereness to e-commerce, native e-commerce um, that's just embedded in lots of places. And that's something that we saw accelerated from the pandemic as well. Social shopping, for example, already quite a significant industry in China, for example, in the Chinese market. Um, some awareness coming up uh, here in Western Europe as well. And yeah, what, what the technological means will be, I'm not sure. Is it can, Google Glass was a failure. Facebook had their Ray-Bans coming out lately. Um, but even the cell phones that were the, hand, the mobile phones that we're using right now, this could already be the way. It, it's just, for example, Google has released, uh, they're, they're, they're working with new technology. You know, they have this very powerful image search and they're combining that with uh, voice queries so that you can combine, um, you can basically uh, with Google Glass, look at an outfit that someone's wearing and say, what shoes are those? And get a result. And this is just the beginning. There'll be a lot coming in this direction, I'm sure. Maybe like Minority Report one day, if you... <laughs> <laughs> Because one, one, one question uh, from, from the audience was, uh, what is our view about uh, live video shopping, which is somewhat connected to the way we shop right now and maybe in the future? What is your take on it? Maybe, Mike, because you're already in the flow. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it, it's, it's not for me personally, but I'm probably not the right demographic for that. And, you know, it's funny because this is not a, really a new technology. Um, there was... QVC, the shop, like these kind of TV-based shopping experiences in the past and live shopping. It's just, you know, something that ASOS was really great at was influencer marketing, user-generated content. And it's just basically taking an old experience like QVC and merging it with, with these other kinds of trends. Mm -hmm. And yeah, I see no reason why it shouldn't continue on a positive trajectory. Talking about differentiators, if I come back to, I think, the second or third question, Brian, from your perspective, what was the major differentiator why ASOS just went through the roof? I think it's back to uh, what I said earlier. I think it did have a very clear understanding of the customer. Interestingly, ASOS, which stands for As Seen On Screen, mm -hmm. started off as a product placement company, and it thought that people were going to want to buy articles that they saw on TV programs, you know, if they might want to buy, you know, a fruit bowl or a, a TV set or something. In those days, product placement was quite big, but it very quickly became clear that they didn't want to buy any of the physical goods. They wanted to buy the clothes that the stars were wearing. And so they quickly realized that they could, if they could make up copies of these clothes and get them on sale very, very quickly, that there was a business there. And that's where fast fashion came from. So really, I think ASOS was opportunistic But not just opportunistic. It listened to its customer. It really understood it, and it got out ahead of the pack. And, and it built that. I think as Chris said, you know, it, it built that relationship with the customer based on its own content, based on you know user-generated content. It just became relevant. It became the authentic voice of what's cool in fashion for the next six weeks. It's a good time frame for six weeks. <laughs> <laughs> so you emphasize this fastness, and this is really super important. Absolutely. Can I, can I just, uh, especially on the topic of fast fashion, I remember two or three years ago, I was talking to the HR manager of, of H&M and they were, they were also having the thing. They saw, hey, fast fashion might not be the future. That's going to be kind of difficult. I'd say if you get into a proper, because we were talking about ecology before, we were talking about green ecology the whole time. Was always, yeah. How do we produce less? How do we consume less? 
the blue ecological vision that I was trying to trying to put out and push is you can have fashion as fast as you bloody want and you just consume, consume. And because it's proper circular, it just goes back into the system mm-hmm. and it just gets... And if you look at concepts like cradle to cradle and so on, they're building the technology to make this possible. So I think that that will be a future vision of, you know, hedonistic ecology that actually i mean at least me it gets me going even though i'm not big into fast fashion actually uh the just the mere thought of turning recoding the the topic of ecology and future like that then fast fashion fast consumption isn't a bad thing it's part of the system earth isn't a closed system it's not a zero-sum game in reality but we keep on treating it as one that was my short ecological rant i'm sorry <laughs> ecological rant. uh justin there's one question which i think um, obviously you're perfectly suited to answer it um The generational generational shift uh, you were talking about. Mm-hmm. Can you elaborate a little bit more how it could impact consumer behavior? Because obviously this is more or less connected to fast fashion. Mm-hmm. Um, what is your take on it? And maybe obviously other chance jump in right there if if you. Will. I mean maybe just briefly because the baby boomers were always the generation that have now been you know blamed for all evils in the world and industrialization and all this mass consumption that we have. I mean they <laughs> rebuilt the world after the Second World War, and the Absolutely. problem is the younger generations are growing up in extreme wealth in abbreviation marks. It might not necessarily be their own, but their parents, extreme security and wealth, and are then within that frame that they grew up in and their consumption world are then asking critical questions. Just as the older generations asked critical questions about the consumption patterns that they had back then. So it's a completely normal process that then we, and I've, I've noticed this happen a lot, then look at the younger generations and say, ah, oh, you know, they're being so difficult and so self-righteous and so woke and all that stuff. In reality, that's just the constant shift, constant generational shift. And this is not going to stop. Mm. Just because uh, currently now it's an ecological topic, it, consumption will become a social topic again after it's become an ecological one. And then it might become an ecological one again. This will not stop. So I think we need to find a better way to adapt our constant vision of generational shifts. That this is a constant change. And always from our perspective, the younger generations is always going to seem, you know, uh, yeah, on the one hand, always, you know, lazy and yeah, self-righteous. Those are usually the two things you associate with the younger generations. It's just not true, mm. sadly makes sense we are somehow in the same generation i mean i'm probably yeah, bored, 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 early, borderline, I'm right? uh, borderline. Uh, uh just in just one question what is the biggest difference between our generation and the youngest one which will obviously be a dominant force when it comes down to consumption let's say in five to 15 years well the younger generation actually i've got to be careful by saying this they are actually fiscally a lot more conservative than our generation because okay. they're the first generation that it will probably not be creating more wealth than their parents' generation. We might just about make it. And that makes them think very conservatively about fiscal questions. So they're going to they're gonna go more for how long will this product work for me? Um, how high is the quality? Stuff like that. That's actually what's going to happen in the end. So that's kind of the difference towards our generation. That was a little bit more laissez-faire, post-material, and so on. Mm-hmm. What does that mean for the retailers? Go now. for quality. Go for quality, quality instead of quantity. That's if, if you want to get the younger generation, uh, that's the simplest tip that also doesn't make everyone frightened. Because if I say you've got to find post-growth systems to make your economy work, then people get freaked out because they think post-growth means no growth. So I think if you just say we go quality instead of quantity, everyone can still be making tons of money. That's great. We're still growing, but you know we're not drowning. That like, mm. would <laughs> be quite good. Yeah, you want to do something? Or? No, sorry, I was just listening. So. <laughs> um, I, I've got one more thing to add, um, just maybe about this idea of, yeah, that they're fiscally conservative in a certain sense. Um, never mind the political connotations that might have too, but 
I think that there's also this, this was raised earlier that banks thought that they couldn't be, um, disrupted or have somebody mm. eat their lunch. And, um, now we see it a lot in e-commerce. There are so many more payment options coming up, payment options, yeah, innovation and like buy now, pay later. And we'll have to be careful about these things, but I think that definitely people will expect novel ways of paying and different ways of dealing with money. Buy now, pay later. Okay. It's not a credit card, but actually people are taking on a lot of debt in a certain way. And there's, there's tons of topics that will come up here. Um, but also payment providers, including these new digital, digitally native payment providers are getting a certain place in the e-commerce ecosystem that you might not expect. So that you see companies like Klarna investing in retail technology. And it's just fascinating to watch it all unfold. Yeah. Absolutely. Maybe I was just uh, trying to connect these, these generational gaps. And then for a strategy, what you do as a retailer in the end, when you see also the other economic environment we have. So we have tons of money out there. Mm -hmm. And I think Brian was talking about the, the, the lifespan of companies here. And, and why not will all these, let's say, younger generations build up their own brands, their own retailers with all this money which is around? Uh, do you see any of this, uh, that you just, just have payment, new banks, we were talking about banks, something like this, just for the smaller target group and every target group, every generation has their own economic mm -hmm. environment in one way? I mean, we can see that the Gen Z, the younger generation is going very much into the whole direction startup and so on. But that's honestly because they just based on pure buying and financial power that they have, they just don't have a choice at this point anymore. If you enter the workforce as a Gen Z person right now, you're paying half your money, over half your money, two thirds as rent. Where's disposable income? The, the time they get disposable income is when their parents die. So I think, <laughs> got to be a bit careful there. I think, I think a lot of this is, um, they don't have the capital. I didn't only say that they will do it, produce it on their own, but when you see what's, what the, the fundings in the last one and a half years in the e-commerce sector, mm. also in other sectors, uh, in technology companies like we are, it's, it's enormous. Mm. There is money, money, money spent there. And then on the other hand, we have this separation for the different generations. Exactly. So that's what my, my thought maybe that also a brand, a retailer, from the day could think about building something completely new for this different generation, then just only say, okay, we're going into quality now because the generation set itself is not big enough. Yeah, so I mean, that's, that's, that's the big, absolutely, I would agree. Just based on pure demographics, it's a pretty bad idea to cater towards them yeah. if they have a birth rate of 1.4 or so. That is true. So, yeah, but I, you know, I, I don't want to, I don't want to say, yeah, actually don't market towards them because they're too small and they don't have any buying no. power. You know, that's, that's, that's no, but cynical. if they are that different, maybe you have to market in a completely mm. different way. And then you have to think about separation. I mean, the, big, the big problem with the younger generations is this is my generation, your generation and the Gen Z is that there's such a high rate of individualization within them. It's actually quite hard to categorize them into these classic classical, uh, you know, market patterns that would like them to be. So peak individualization, I think has happened. I mentioned that before. And I think especially you can, if, if you're going for target groups, you might as well lump Z and Y generations together because they're so individualized within them that if you're going for anything, but questions of, you know, as I said, fiscal questions and so on, they're actually too different to be categorized properly. Talking about, again, generations, one question, which obviously can be mapped to a generational topic as well is, Uh, do we think that the consumer perception of global supply chain complexities and costs, which are now popping up, at least they're on the news on a constant basis, will that affect the volume and way we consume? 
to be honest, because I'm reflecting more on it since I know, okay, the ubiquity of, of products, you know. We, <laughs> since we, we, the evergreen got stuck, yeah, huh? it, yeah, it, I've, it's, I've had the same. <laughs> it might stop, right? So what is your take on it, uh, Chance? Uh, supply chain complexities, is it a new trend? I don't know. And will it affect or impact um, the behavior of, yeah, consumption? Just a, a short word on that. I think that a lot of the things that we saw in the early acute phase of the pandemic, they, they weren't different enough or, and they, or they weren't sustained enough to really create change in behavior or preference. You know, the idea that people were very, and still are in a certain extent, very concerned about um, health or sanitation measures in a, in a store, for example. This won't stick around forever, mm. I would guess. But um, when you see there was another, there was a supply shock at the beginning, and this has been persisting. And, you know, it's over time, it can be enough that it's starting to, as this continued relevance, is starting to train new behaviors, new preferences. And, you know, I think it's, it's an area where brands and retailers need to be really strong on communication, on availability and, and topics like this. But in the future... It, it, it's hard to say because what will the causes of supply chain disruption be in the future? I, I'm not quite sure. Right now, I can understand what's causing that. Whether that's going to be a trend that lasts forever, I, I'm not sure. I think it's, it, it's still a huge issue. It was not only on the beginning. No, that's when right. you see now in the last days, President Biden steps in front of the press and is telling us that Los Angeles uh, Harbor is now working 24-7 mm-hmm. to, to, to get rid of this, what, what's stuck there for one and a half year now. Uh, and, and so we, we have a major disruption in all these processes and it will be interesting how long it will really take. I think nobody can, can, can have a, a sure or a clear answer on this because it's a, it's a very fragile system in the, in the end. So I think what maybe European retailers and others can, can think of is what can, you, you talked about this localization trend. It's not only that the market is demanding it. Maybe we have to think about which goods we want to have here, we want to produce here, we, where people are willing to pay an extra uh, price. Because this, this could happen all the time and it's not clear when it's, when it's really solved. I think that's why it was so important to actually see the fragility of it. Because let's be honest, we did kind of reduce a lot of redundancy within the global system. I mean, this all in-time production, in-time delivery and so on, it, it was bound to burst at some yeah. point. I mean, let's be real. So I think I think the fact that it happened, that we kind of got away with it, honestly, like it's, it's yeah, okay, the, the newest cars aren't being built right now and maybe you can't get your favorite sausage at the time you want, but it's not, I mean, it could be a lot worse based on how high the dependencies Absolutely. were before. Absolutely. So uh, with that regard, I think, can't think of the English word uh, for it, but in German, Fertigungstiefe, you know, it's just, it's going to rise. We're going to produce more in our local economic regions just to increase resiliency in the global system. That's good for everyone. That's not an anti-global thesis. It's just, it increases resiliency of the entire system. I think that's a good thing. I mean, uh, to look at the supply chain complexities from another perspective, Brian, you as a former CEO and chairman of, of big online retailers, do you think that supply chain management in general or clear measures to mitigate the risk of supply chain complex complexities. Could this be the new, I don't know, major differentiator to solve these problems? And are there already good ideas out there? Because I know talking to a lot of clients, it's a real pain right now. So what is your take on it? Well, I think this will be a, a short-term problem. Now, short-term might be six or nine months. Let, let, let's again go back to what I said. Start with the customer. Customers don't understand and shouldn't have to understand supply chains. <laughs> customers want to know, Have you got the product I want in stock? 
What's the price? When can I get it? And if it's not in stock, is it worth waiting for? You know, customers want things tomorrow. They want things today. But they'll wait for the latest iPhone. They'll wait for the latest Tesla. So people are prepared to wait for something that's, that's important to them. Uh, but I think that customers don't want to hear about, well, it's because of the pandemic. It's because of the supply chain. They don't want to hear excuses from suppliers. They just want to hear some facts. Have you got it? Yes or no. If you haven't got it, when can I get it? And how much will it be? And then they'll make the decision based on that. And at the end of the day, you know, the chip shortage will get better. But we have all brought the problem upon ourselves. The whole Kanban just-in-time system was done because we were having to drive down costs to get prices lower. And I think we just ran the system, the global system, too thin. I think there will have to be a rebalance. And, and what will be a consequence of that is that prices will probably start to drift up as well. So you get nothing for nothing here. I think it's a short-term problem. I think it's a real problem. Consumers don't want to be told a lot of gobbledygook about this supply chain, that global issue, this pandemic, post this and that. They just want their chosen, uh, they want Amazon or ASOS or whoever it is to give them what they want when they want it at a decent price. Great statement. Guys, life is unfair. Unfortunately, we are almost done for today. Basically, the time is up. What I would love uh, to ask you now, every single one of you, what is the major takeaway of today? And what is the core message you want to share with our hundreds of listeners. Mike, I don't want to put pressure on you, but you, you are the first in a row. So Mike, uh, let's set the benchmark. <laughs> Maybe Yannis first. <laughs> it's a matter of perspective. Absolutely. <laughs> One thing that I see as just a, a layer that um, can help resolve problems or add value along a lot of the topics that we talked about, it's already been mentioned, but data or rather information. Uh, so I just firmly believe that it's it's a, an urgent priority. Yesterday was already like we should start any time now in organizations to really start working on building up the data data literacy in their teams, making sure that data is available to people without having to jump through too many hoops or you know having to because it's always there's this decision latency when you're talking about going from data, a raw asset to a business value. Um, and the longer that takes and the more steps that are in there, the less value you can extract in the end. And so it's just about having the people and the processes and the tools in place to facilitate that. Brian. Well, I don't think, uh, I don't think my view, has, I think what I've heard today is reinforced some of my own thoughts and biases. I think uh, we've talked about data, we've talked about technology, we've talked about AI, we've talked about supply chains. All of these things are important, but they're all a means to an end. They're all a means to an end, which is helping you serve your customer better. So I just think uh, in this difficult world just now, when you look out there at the chaos, don't lose sight of the customer. Just remember what Jeff said, start with the customer and work backwards. Tristan. Don't forget counter trends. If you think that mega trend is never going to touch you, it'll come from a blind spot and give you a proper beating. And you can talk badly about our generation, but be nice to Gen Z. I think those are my key takeaways. That counter trend thing is it? That that blew my mind. Actually, I have to think about that. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Final words of today. I'm happy uh, that uh, people obviously attendance uh, see the importance of, of of the big data topic. I don't want to dig deeper in that, but I really think one of my major takeaways is the importance of leadership. And it's not only in that we are fast enough in the companies, it is for the whole planet. 
wherever. And I think, Brian, you also said it, it, it does not depend on the level of hierarchy where you are. Everybody can be a leader and has to be it sometimes. And an organization should emphasize this and, and, and let people go and do. And this will, will help in the organizations and in the society as well. Mike, Brian, Tristan and Jan, uh, from the bottom of my heart, it was a pleasure. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening. And if you enjoyed this podcast, please consider sharing it with coworkers, friends, or within your professional network. We really appreciate it. This podcast is produced by Smarter E-Commerce. To learn more, visit smarter-ecommerce.com.